Hockey Night in Canada, brought to you by Imperial Oil and Esso Dealers, Agents, and Distributors. Ford, the better idea company with better products for you. And by Molson, Brewers of Molson Export Ale and Molson Canadian Lager Beer. Okay, so for all of you out there who uh, are uh, attuned to when their Hockey Night in Canada themes are, uh, that one is from the 1970-71 season. So uh, as always with the show, I like to have a introduce with a hockey broadcast theme from the era that uh, we're investigating, uh, be whatever story, whatever player that we're centering the episode around. So uh, start your guesses now, but uh, we're definitely in the early 70s for sure. So in the mortal, immortal words of Foster Hewitt, hello, Canada and hockey fans in the United States and Newfoundland. You got to love that phrase from the classic Hockey Night in Canada days when it was just on the radio where the signal would be picked up in, northern, in the northern U.S. and Newfoundland, which until 1949 was not a part of Canada. It just makes me realize that hockey in North America is such a cool interconnected world that the history of the game on this continent, though, really starts in Canada. But it's so much more, especially today, when you think about it. Canada is still the center of the North American hockey universe, even though uh, things continue to grow outside of uh, Canada. That's a theme that I want to stick with, though, for a sec as we open this episode. As we all know, Canada has been and is still the largest producers of NHL players today. Conversely, though, a majority of NHL teams are based in the United States. It was even that way in the original six era of the NHL when four out of six teams were based in the U.S. with the teams almost exclusively stocked by players from Canada, from the vast reaches of Canada. Many of the hockey heroes that built the classic U.S. franchises were just kids from Canada. In Detroit, it was Gordie Howe. In Chicago, it was Bobby Hull. In New York, well, that's a hard one, so... I'll pick somebody and just say Andy Bathgate for now, unless somebody's got some arguments. Uh, in Boston, it was a young defenseman from Perry Sound, Ontario, named Robert Bobby Gordon Orr. Granted, Orr didn't bring the Bruins a cup until after the NHL's 1976 expan- first expansion, but his ascendancy to the Bruins and his debut were c- clearly in the original six era. Before or the Bruins were consistently at the bottom of the six-team NHL, consisting constantly battling with the Rangers and Blackhawks for the rights to last place. It was so bad during the original six era from 1942 to 1967 that the Bruins did not win a single Stanley Cup that was handed out. As a matter of fact, until an Orleb Bruins won the Cup in 1970, the, cup had, the club had not won a Cup since 1941. It's strange to think that for 29 years, one of the NHL's greatest franchises did not win a championship and was and largely struggled except for four productive years in the late 50s with Busick, Stasek, and Horvath leading the team. That all changed with Orr. He changed the outlook of the franchise from his debut in 1966. Right away, he made the Bruins credible, and then with the addition of Phil Esposito from Chicago, there was no stopping him. Orr not only single-handedly changed the destiny of the Bruins, but he changed the entire way defensemen played the game of hockey and thus changed the entire game. His playmaking ability and speed were so strong that he was and still is the only defenseman to have won the Art Ross Trophy as the NHL's leading scorer in a season. Not to mention that Orr was so good on the defensive side of the puck that he never that he was never a minus and plus-minus in his entire career, and that he won eight consecutive Norris trophies as the league's best defenseman is nothing short of amazing. But make no mistakes, Bobby's journey to get to the top of the NHL and stay there was no picnic. He only played 12 seasons in the NHL, with the last three being severely cut short due to knee, chronic knee issues. But his mark on the game is lasting, as he is considered to be one of the best players ever. Still, to hear the story from the man who lived it is simply an experience that all hockey fans should seek out. So that's why I wanted to take this week's episode and share with you Bobby's written story, which is by Bobby Orr, which is entitled Orr, My Story. Let's get into the warm-up, which is up next. 
Listen the story now. Wondrous by the wondrous ways. Wondrous all-star when he plays. Born to be the nation's craze. Wondrous by the wondrous ways. He'll play a tune loud and long. With a stick that can do no wrong. Stare a pass, cruising by. Zip right in and let it fly. Precision plays can be found. And the praise is all around. He's got class. He's got speed, he's got all the Bruins need Wondrous Bobby, wondrous ways Wondrous all-star when he plays Listen to me, sport fans Name the goalie and he'll shine With a blazer to the twine Born for stardom, born to be great He was born to determine the Beantown fate Born to be a stick handling whiz, a take charge guy that knows his biz. Born to be a sizzling threat, a superstar improving yet. Born to be the nation's grace, wondrous Bobby, wondrous ways. Yeah, can you dig it? Huh. Okay, for those of you who don't recognize that voice, I swear it's somebody famous, a uh, very famous Canadian. Uh, and someone who many people from the United States recognize uh, from television, especially if you grew up in the 80s like I did. Um, and uh, that was Alan Thicke, none other than Mr. Seaver himself, uh, singing a, a good ditty there about uh, Bobby. Uh, you got to figure you're a pretty, uh, pretty famous and pretty well sought after if you got a hockey song uh, 45 single made <laughs> especially by Alan Thicke. Uh, but... That all being said, uh, great ditty there. Um, I have yet to find anybody else other than Bobby Orr and Gordie Howe who have their own songs. Uh, they're still sticking around, so pretty fun to listen to. But hey, welcome to the warm-up. Um, I just wanted to start out by asking a question. Uh, when you think of classic images of hockey uh, and basically you know, the iconic pictures that people have snapped over the years, what is the first picture that comes to your mind? I'm sure there's a few different answers out there, but one I there's one that I imagine I'm sure I'd hear over and over if I was to get a sample of a bunch of people uh, to this. And the answer to this question would be the famous black and white photo of Bobby Orr flying horizontally through the air off his skates after scoring the goal that would win the Stanley Cup over the Blues in 1970. The look of elation and pure joy on his face is undeniable. And it looks like he's celebrating the goal by leaving his skates by jumping off of it. But as we all know, the real story is that he was tripped by Blues defenseman Noel Picard after scoring, which is why he was flying through the air. Still, it's that look on Bobby's face that draws you in. Uh, you know, the passion, just this pure excitement for scoring that goal. It's an awesome picture. And I know uh, pretty much everyone out there uh, who's listening has seen it before. Bobby's humility was also something that did him a lot of credit. He accomplished so many hockey feats in such a short time, it would have been easy for him to become cocky or start to engage in other indulgences such as uh, other superstars have been known to have done. But not or. It seems that the same kid with the buzz cap from Perry Sound, Ontario, was there the entire time he was playing. Still, the, even today, as he advises and represents many of the young superstars of the sport like Connor McDavid, uh, Bobby's uh, simpleness and uh, humility still are prevalent and come out. That's why you'll be drawn into this book, really, and that's why I was drawn into this book. Uh, his inability to be pretentious gives you a clear look at the man and his accomplishments. It strikes me that while he does let the reader know about his accomplishments, he leaves a few things out. Many players' autobiographies tend not to miss any accolades they've earned. Also, Bobby is quick to focus on the people around him, his teammates, his parents, uh, his wife, and his children as the reason for his successes and clearly gives them his d their due in the pages of his book. His words are about making sure to appreciate who sacrifices make your dreams come true. Uh, when, he, when he said that in the book, it really spoke to me uh, to remember that a lot of, it takes a lot of people to get you to where you need to go. And, uh, and in Bobby's case, it, it did take a lot of people. But um, I also think that 
Bobby would be remiss if he didn't realize that he was a pretty uh, generational talent who had a lot of natural ability. It was just the supporting cast that made that natural ability uh, able to be seen, known, and uh, get to the level where he could be successful with it. Additionally, this book is a lot like Gordy Howe's book, and it's a real easy read. The language is not too complicated, and it's from the heart. So you get the conversational feel that Bobby is talking to you while you read the book, which is always fun. Uh, add to that, the book is only 182 pages, so you don't need to spend a long time on this one, but you will gain a ton of hockey knowledge with the time you will spend with it. Also with this book, you'll love the extras, especially the last 67 pages where he talks about the state of the game as, the, as of the book's publishing in 2013-2014 and all of his accomplishments and what they meant to him. So, as with an eye, having an eye on today's game, I wanted to take Bobby's book and try to drill down some of the issues that I felt needed to be emphasized, as they seem central to Orr's career and life as the fabric of hockey history, as he's weaved into the fabric of hockey history. Sure, it'd be easy to talk about the Stanley Cup victories and concentrate on all those great Bruin teams of the 1970s, but that would be leaving out the most important part of what I think is Bobby's journey through hockey. All that being said, I think it's time to get ready for the puck drop on the first period where we examine Bobby's uh, signing and his rise into the Bruins as it was a unique experience that I found uh, and one that is awesomely laid out to show the reader what it was like in the original six era to be scouted, recruited, signed, and developed by an NHL franchise. That's up next as we get this tilt underway with the first period. A scout with the Boston Bruins first saw Orr when he was 13 years old. It was an accidental discovery. Back then, it was not like it is today, <laughs> with all the different uh, networks and magazines. And <laughs> I mean, it was so different back there. I mean, uh, Boston wouldn't have seen me if they hadn't gone again in Ockway to see two other guys. Now, why did you decide to choose Boston? Well, uh, I think that Boston is building their team now. And I'd just like to be a part of their building. In the days before the NHL draft, teams found creative ways to secure their players. The Boston Bruins gave Perry Sound Minor Hockey $10,000 they donated, which was good. They could use the money. But for $10,000, Boston claimed Bob York. Tonight, playing his first game here in the garden with the Boston Bruins, Bobby Orr. Bobby, are you enjoying it all? Oh, very much so, thank you. You like the traveling? Yes, very much. You like the cities? Mm -hmm. They're great. What about the spirit of the Boston club? Oh, they have great spirit. Uh, we have a young team, I think the average age around 24, and they have great spirit, and uh, they're all great guys. Bobby and I were roommates when he first came to Boston, and uh, I was supposed to look after him and help him lead the way. But it, it reversed. It was looking after me. All of a sudden, he's got running room. Getting around Harris. Putting in. Orr has scored a short-handed goal. Bobby Orr has broken the record for most goals in the season by the Bruinsman from the line. Goal! And it's a standing ovation here at the Boston Garden for Bobby Orr. That was a clip of an interview that uh, they did with some people uh Bobby especially there from the uh, series Hometown Hockey, basically chronicling Bobby's rise into the NHL and more specifically talking about his recruitment uh, when he uh, when the Bruins scouts saw, first saw him there in Perry Sound. So uh, really cool story. And that's really going to be the focus. And what we're going to talk about in the first period is uh, Bobby's recruitment, because when I read it in the book, I really was like, wow, this is extremely enlightening because it's not the system that you think of in the NHL today, as Bobby explains in the uh, clip that we just heard. Uh, it's a lot more difficult, uh, in it, but it's really a cool story and indicative of how players came up during the original six era before the, uh, before the draft. So the, I like watching the NHL draft. I don't know about anybody else out, out there. I think it's an exciting time. Uh, the work and hopes of so many young players are on display as they and their families hear their names called by an NHL franchise who wants their talents to play for them. It's also just great to see who the new members of your favorite team are going to be. 
And it also it gives you a public display of just what the future of the franchise is going to look like. Uh, so I love watching the draft. So to think that there was another way of player accession is really kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But in the original six era, there was no NHL draft. The first NHL draft was not held until 1963. Uh, before the, that, the six franchises in the NHL had a complex web of scouts who would funnel players towards franchise-sponsored junior hockey teams. It was as if the teams had their own junior hockey league that would feed their team. Uh, this also meant that teams would sign players to what they called an A, B, or C uh, form to gain their commitment at different levels uh, from an early age. Or does a wonderful job in the book of simply laying all this out and explaining it to you. Uh, as, he'll show, as he shows and explains, if a player signed an A form, that player was committed to having a tryout with whatever team he signed that A form with. It was no formal contract, uh, basically. Uh, it was just a chance to try out. If a, team, if a player signed a B form, it meant that the team had the right to sign that player to a contract but had no real commitment to them at that point. And then finally, there was a C form, which was completely... Uh, which completely assigned the player's uh, right to a certain team. And this was very important, especially mixed in with what we like to call the reserve clause, which was uh, what uh, kept free agency from being around in the NHL until the mid-70s. Uh, so basically, when you sign that C form, it meant that your rights were now uh, given to whatever team uh, you signed the C form with, and you had to either A, play for them, or B, be traded or uh, sold to another team. For Bobby, his formal journey into the NHL began at a very early age, at 12. By this time, Orr had been moved to defense and started to be noticed by scouts for his ability to skate and quarterback to play on the ice. All the time Bobby spent playing on the Bay and Perry Sound started to pay off. As he said, it was in those games on the frozen Bay in the winter where because there were so many kids playing that he learned to weave in and out of the play and control the puck which is what was getting him noticed by the professional scouts. Now, even in those days, 12 was a very young age to be considered to sign with a pro club uh, to one of those forms that we just described, but there were a ton of suitors beginning to line up for Bobby's services. One of the scouts who noticed Bobby uh, in that time was the great Scotty Bowman, who did report back to his superiors in the Canadians organization, who promptly told Scotty, uh, we don't sign babies to contracts. Uh, while that was true, uh, I, you can see that uh, you might have probably wanted to make an exception for Bobby Orr. So that opened the door for the uh, Bruins, whose uh, scout, Ren Blair, also reported back to his club about Bobby at the same time and, his and uh, explained his, how his natural skating ability was unlike anything he'd seen. But unlike the Canadians' leadership, uh, the Bruins' leadership went ahead and greenlighted the active recruitment of Bobby Orr. The Bruins were so serious about getting ahead and currying favor towards the Oars that from the beginning, the organization would pledge $1,000 each season to sponsor Perry Sound's minor hockey program from 1961 to 1964. That was done in addition to Blair making regular visits to the Oars over the course of the next year, even though Bobby was not yet formally signed with the organization. Blair's persistence mixed with Bobby's realization that the Bruins offered the best chance for instant playing time as opposed to, say, Montreal, where we'd be buried under a mountain of talent uh, that led to Bobby going ahead and signing a C-form with Boston at the age of 14. By signing that C-form, Bobby knew he'd be uh, a Boston Bruin, and that would be his destination with a, uh, with a clear path to accession and with the way the reserve clause worked, uh, he would definitely uh, be a Bruin. And as he put it, he didn't think anything of the absoluteness of being locked into the Bruins organization. He just knew that he was ready to keep moving up towards the NHL uh, and liked the situation that the Bruins would offer him in the end. So now it's uh, 1962, a little bit of a fast forward, and Bobby is part of the Bruins machine officially. They look to get him placed with the club's new Junior A affiliate in Oshawa. One roadblock remained, Bobby's mom, who decided that Bobby could not leave home 
for the full-time life of a junior hockey player when he hadn't even completed the eighth grade. That's how young Bobby Orr was when he signed his C form. It's kind of crazy. So knowing the special talent that Bobby was, the Bruins made an exception that Bobby would spend the weekdays in Perry Sound for school and then on Friday would join his uh, team in Oshawa, the Generals, to play uh, the weekend slate of games wherever they might be, uh, be it in Oshawa or anywhere else in Ontario. Also, the Bruins were being completely serious uh, as they came correct and offered uh, Bobby's dad a uh, new car to facilitate all this driving around and uh, road trips. Kind of neat, a little extra. I mention all this because I wanted to do two things to show you the interesting way that players were recruited and signed in this area, era and to explain to you uh, just what a great talent Orr was at such a young age and how it was identified very quickly by people outside. It's a strange thing that in the case of greats like Howe, Gretzky, and Orr, that they all were identified and recruited at very young ages. Also, add in the exceptions that were made for Bobby, and you can start to see that the Bruins and Ren Blair knew where there was something exceptional in him from the start and were willing to do what they had to do to get him developed and into uh, a Boston Bruins sweater. But in addition to those two things, I also wanted to go over Bobby's time in Oshawa once he was allowed by his mom to move down there full-time and be with the Generals. I really appreciated this part of the book because it's a very honest account of junior hockey life in the 1960s. It's crazy to think that Bobby, at age 15, was living away from home with a strange billet family in a new school and had the demand of a full-time hockey job, basically, uh, to boot uh, while trying to go to school. That's a lot for a kid. And Bobby recognizes it in the book by describing he'd be homesick and doubtful at some points, even with as good as he was. This is coming from a guy who became one of the best. And at the time, it was known that he had the talent to make it. So... Uh, for him to have doubts uh, and to ha experience all these things that uh, players have been known to uh, recount from their days in junior hockey is nothing short of uh, a testament to Orr and his humility uh, and the fact that he understood that he still had to work to get where he was going. Bobby explains that in his four years with the Generals, he was very fortunate to have structure, support, and an internal drive to make it to the NHL. He offers thanks and recognition to a cast of people who helped him in those years, like coaches, billet families, and rink managers. He credits them with making sure that he stayed on the straight and narrow, but mostly credits them with enabling him to learn and to grow as a player as he looked to feed his determination to make it into the big leagues. It's at this moment in the book, uh, in the book to, that he clues the reader into the fact that he doesn't always go this way it doesn't always go this way for every junior player uh, sometimes through sliding performance listlessness or sheer, sheer depression from being away from home uh, many junior players turn to bad distractors that derail their dreams or worse put their lives on uh, onto bad courses he alludes to the guardrails that uh, are used and used to be there when he played that really aren't there anymore and that junior hockey players today face a much more risky road if not looked after properly. I'd, I'd wholeheartedly agree with that as well and added and I'd add to that if you read about the uh, junior hockey experiences of many you might be shocked to know that these young kids are subjected to bad behaviors that they are allowowed to engage in vis-a-vis um, -vis if you listen to last episode like uh, the situation that Derek Bugard was in when he was in Prince George's and just basically having the ability to party at will and having free reign in the town because everybody was looking the other way. It just didn't seem to be that way in uh, in Bobby's age. They actually were doing their job looking after these young kids. Uh, it's a little different now today. That being said, though, Bobby clues into one of the biggest motivators that can work for even today's generations of junior players, a good support system with the guardrails that keeps the player focused and the teenage kids safe. As we all know, it worked out for Bobby, and, point, and he points out that he was ready at 18 to join the NHL. 
as he looked towards joining the Bruins in the 1966-67 season. And as we'll see and discuss in the second period, Bobby was ready, but he'd almost from the get-go have to battle what would end up being the issue that would end his 12 career 12 only 12 seasons later. Stand by, we'll be back. The second period is up after this. First year that Bobby came into the league, 1966. We're in Boston, playing in the old Boston Gardens. First period is over. The score is 3-1 to one for Boston. Bobby Orr had scored two goals and assisted on the other one and had the puck all first period. Buzzer goes, I went over and Frank Adbury was the was the referee. I said, Frank, what are we going to do about this blonde-haired kid? He said, Bobby, what do you want to do? I said, let's do this. I said, when we come out for the second period, I said, just throw Bobby that puck that he had all first period. And then I said, just pitch another one out for the rest of us to play with. Harry Howell won the Norris Trophy's top defenseman. In his speech, he said, I'm glad I won it now because Bobby Orr is going to win it for the next 10 years. And he was right. And back then it was unusual for veterans to show that much respect to rookies. When he got the puck, if he wanted to keep it, it seemed like it was a kid's game and he could keep it as long as he wanted. He could do what he wanted with it. He was so special and did so much and, and did it with grace and elegance and, and modesty. And I think that he's what all hockey players should try to be like. Okay, so what you heard there was uh, a couple of hockey greats talking about Bobby Orr and their first impressions uh, of him uh, playing and just, well, their overall impressions of him. Uh, the first voice you heard was Bobby Hull, who talks about playing his first game against Orr and just uh, in a very blustery uh, Bobby Hall way explaining uh, a story about how he <laughs> just thought that his puck control was absolutely amazing and uh, how he uh, just thought, you know, thought to mention that to the referee and make a joke about it in a very Bobby Hall way. The uh, last person talking, though, was Bobby Clark. And, and I really like the words that Bobby Clark had to say about Bobby Orr because when you look at it, just the fact that he is so glowing and saying how he skated and just how he did it with so much humility and, and class is, is, is really an important thing to me because uh, Bobby Clark was such an intense player, and for him to to recognize and hold Bobby Orr in such reverence is, is very important because they definitely did go to head-to-head in the 70s there uh, through a lot of battles. So as we look at the second period, uh, I just want to start out by declaring one thing about Bobby Orr that you probably didn't real that you probably realized right away. Uh, his arrival in Boston for his rookie year was not something that was unexpected. The organization knew that when they signed him and uh, were reassured by his play in Oshawa that he was going to make the team when eligible at 18, and of course he did. The club had also been really touting his arrival uh, to the fans and media in Boston, and they were ready in 1966 to see their chance to see the young man this for, in his first season in Boston, like many things for Orr, it, it went very well as expected. He ended the season winning the Calder Trophy and was runner-up to the Norris Trophy. The Bruins finished 17-43-10 that season, but there was a thought that the team was also on an upswing as the attendance in the uh, Garden grew and media attention continued to grow significantly. But for all the fanfare and successes the first season held for Bobby, it also held for him what would be the first in the line of many knee injuries to come that happened in December of that year where he missed nine games after twisting his left knee against the boards on a hit from Toronto's Marcel Provenel. Uh, add to that, in that offseason, uh, before the 67-68 season, in a charity game in Winnipeg, Orr would suffer a uh, injury, knee injury that would cause him to be in a cast for five weeks. That set up another disappointing injury-shortened uh, season where a broken collarbone and then eventually uh, that same left knee would be that was injured in the summer would limit him to only 46 games and 31 points. In February, basically, what had happened of that year, what happened was the pain became too much for Bobby, and he had to have surgery uh, to remove two-thirds of his uh, medical meniscus. Uh, Orr would come back and join the team who uh, finally made the playoffs only to be swept by Montreal in the first round 
and Bobby, but Bobby would still win his first Norris Trophy in the line of uh, eight that he would eventually win at the end of that streak. And if that wasn't enough, that offseason in 1968, Bobby found his knee was still very sore and stiff, which led to another surgery on his left knee to remove damaged uh, articular cartilage. And as Bobby is quick to point out in the book, once the cartilage is gone, it's gone, uh, which is in the, probably a foreshadow, which is definitely a foreshadowing to the uh, issues he would have that would plague him throughout his career. That meant that even at the age of 20, Bobby's knee was now a ticking time bomb. And I don't mean to try and make you an orthopedic surgeon by any means right now, uh, but rather I just wanted to start to weave in the handicap that Bobby was uh, starting to stare down with his knees uh, as it would become an impediment towards his career. It's also a way to fully explain that virtually from the beginning Orr was running on pure determination to play, perhaps the at the perhaps at what would be the highest level for an NHL player, despite having knee issues that would sideline or possibly end the career of another player. But Bobby was already starting to play through what would be major knee problems pretty much right from the beginning. So in 1968-69, he continued his climb up the ladder with another solid season. He tallied 21 goals and 64 points to break the then record in points for a defenseman in a season. And he won the Norris Trophy again on top of that. But that was only a preview of what was to come uh, in 1969-70. I'll start by saying that Orr's performance in the 1969-70 season might be one of the best by a player in NHL history. The Bruins had a great supporting cast around Bobby by this point, led by Esposito, Cheevers, and Sanderson. But in 1969-70, Bobby was the star of the show and became the player that everyone knew he'd eventually be. His knee stayed healthy, and he amassed 120 points, winning the Art Ross Trophy for most points in the NHL. He won the Norris Trophy. He won the Hart Trophy. He won the Conn Smythe Trophy. And if that wasn't enough, the Bruins won the Cup that year with Orr scoring the OT winner in Game 4 for a sweep of the Blues. It was, it was and probably still is the best individual season by a player in NHL history. It's just amazing. And I've even got my uh, Stanley Cup, uh, 1970 Stanley Cup t-shirt on right now to channel that energy, in case you were wondering. Orr would continue to dominate the league in the early 1970s. His knees were largely manageable, and he was racking up gains, games and points at a fever pace. The next two seasons through the summer of 1972, Bobby had amassed two more Norris trophies, another Conn Smythe trophy, and most importantly, another Stanley Cup championship in 1972. He was dominating the league, but his left knee, again, was bothering him halfway through the 71-72 season, and Bobby had to have surgery uh, two weeks after the Bruins won that cup to fix his knee yet again. This would be a harder road as there was an extensive rehab to be done over the summer and thus Bobby was unable to play in one of the most famous uh, series of games which was the 1972 Summit Series against the Soviets. Reading his account of it in the book is crushing as he even tried to give it a go by training with Team Canada but he had to eventually shut it down because he couldn't play through the pain, which, as you're starting to gather, had to be immense for Orr to stop trying to play. It seems to be one of those things that Bobby thinks about even today, one of the biggest regrets, but probably the right thing for him in the end as the knee just wasn't willing to let him perform up to the level he needed to. That next season, the NHL would... that next NHL season would be uneventful for Orr and the Bruins, losing in the first round to the Rangers. Uh, Orr won the Norris Trophy, but that was about it. In 73-74, the Bruins had what could be said was their last great season as they took the Flyers to six games in the Cup Finals but lost. Orr, once again, won the Norris Trophy. In 74-75, the uh, team was on more of a decline, but there were still more high levels of scoring, and Orr garnered his first of his, what would be his last uh, of eight Norris total tro eight total Norris trophies in a row. 
He describes this time as a relatively stable time health-wise, as his knee was manageable. Headed into the 75-76 season, though, these things went downhill fast for Bobby and his knee. In the summer of 75, Bobby was negotiating his new contract with the Bruins and looking to be to setting himself up to retire in Boston and even possibly get an ownership stake in the team, uh, depending on how the contract was going through. But that all fell through uh, as during the due diligence process to check with the league and other entities vested in the interest of uh, had a vested interest in the Bruins, Bobby had a small surgery to clear out what he called a loose body in his knee that led to only about 90 days later to have to remove the uh, entire torn lateral meniscus in that left knee. This final surgery led to a decision by the insurance agency for the Bruins not to insure Orr's negotiated contract, which was thought, and it was thought that his playing days were starting to be numbered. That led to a reduced offer by the Bruins, but still an ownership stake in the team. But there was an eventual rejections of the uh, contract offer by uh, Orr and his agent, Alan, the infamous Alan Eagleson, that we'll discuss more in depth in the third period. This episode led to Eagleson negotiating a five-year guaranteed contract with the Blackhawks, which Orr signed at the advice of his agent. Orr's time, as we know, in Chicago would be largely disappointing as he was only able to play 26 games over the next three seasons. No longer could Bobby simply pay, play through the pain in his knee he just couldn't play like he used to, and so at the end of the 1978-79 season, he officially retired. So why the explanation of all these knee injuries mixed in with tales of his accomplishments? Simply, the idea here is that to summarize that Orr's career, and in line with the narrative of the book, you need to understand that Bobby was a once-in-a-lifetime player, perhaps the best uh, ever talent-wise. But there was a tragedy, and but the tragedy of Orr is that, for as much as he played through the pain and showed tremendous fortitude and character to do so, he did it at the highest level of the NHL, uh, winning scoring trophies, winning MVP awards, winning the Stanley Cup. He was the best in his era and arguably the top, five, probably the top in the top five best ever players, uh, from a results standpoint. Had it not been for a bad knee in only nine good seasons, had we could we have seen much more from Bobby Orr? Would he have been the consensus best ever? Uh, we'll never know. But once again, that's that's the weird part about all his knee injuries and uh, what the effect on him was, and the fact that it started from pretty much the beginning. It was something that he was constantly battling. But as he was battling him, he was still the best player in the NHL. But to wrap up and to get ready for the final frame, I want to clue into another downfall that uh, really uh, affected Bobby in his career and life, for that matter. This one was not on the ice, but off it, and one that affects Orr even today, long after his retirement. The deception and bad deeds done on to him by his trusted agent and friend, Alan Eagleson. Let's dive into that. The third period's up next. The name Alan Eagleson is synonymous with hockey here at home and around the world. A consummate hockey man whose efforts founded the National Hockey League Players Association and introduced international hockey to North Americans, whose work led him to the Hockey Hall of Fame. But today, after two years of investigation by a U.S. grand jury, Eagleson is facing the toughest challenge of his career and 32 criminal charges. Rob Sinclair is in Boston and takes us through the story. Today we are announcing the unsealing of an indictment against our... Alan Eagleson, uh, the former executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association. With that announcement, a lengthy grand jury investigation had finally reached a verdict. And based on the evidence, serious criminal charges were laid against Alan Eagleson. Mr. Eagleson, over a period of 15 years, engaged in a pattern of racketeering, fraud, kickbacks, and self-dealing for himself and for others. Uh, Mr. Eagleson is alleged to have used his position as head of the NHL Players Union to conduct a racketing enterprise from 1975 until 1992 in which he committed various forms of fraud against the players, in which it is alleged he embezzled money and property from the association and from its members. 
that he solicited and received kickbacks in the form of money and property in connection with his administration of disability insurance plans for the players. And finally, as I alluded to already, that he obstructed or attempted to obstruct justice. So what you heard there was an excerpt of a uh, the U.S. attorney's press conference indicting Alan Eagleson on fraud charges, uh, mostly stemming from his time as director of the NHLPA and as a player agent. And as we know, one of his uh, clients was Bobby Orr. And as we see here in the third period, we're going to talk about what the effect was on Orr because uh, it was such a big deal to Bobby that he took an entire chapter of the book to explain it. And it seemed like it was something that was very hard for him to talk about. So uh, I really wanted to drill that down here in the third period. So that's what we're going to discuss. So in life, one of the worst things to see is a breach of trust and deceptions by the ones you trust. It takes a lot to entrust someone with your most important affairs. And we always hope that that person being entrusted knows the implications for doing a poor job and the damage that deception can do uh, to a person. All too often in life, we see the ones we count on the most can be the ones in the end who let us down, even despite their promises not to do so. This bond of trust and friendship is usually the case for professional athletes and their agents. In the case of Bobby Orr, that man originally was Alan Eagleson. Now, to preface this period correctly, I'd like to use Bobby's words from the book. Bobby does not mention Eagleson until at all, at all, does not even uh, write the man's name until page 189 of the book. Because as he put it, quote, I didn't want his name strung through the fabric of this book. If I had a choice... I wouldn't write another word about the man exactly for the same reason I rarely talk about him. That is, Alan Eagleson is no longer a part of my life. He's just a memory. But the truth is, at one point, he was part of my life. A very important part, and at a critically important time as well. So for all, the, you, all those of you out there who are not aware of who Alan Eagleson is, he was the first executive director of the NHLPA and was an agent to Bobby and some of the other uh, big names of the day, uh, including Daryl Sittler. It was said that he changed the face of negotiations in the NHL and steered things towards better and more prosperous salaries and benefits for the players of the NHL. For his efforts, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame and given the Order of Canada. Little did everyone know that Eagleson's motives and actions were not so noble. Eagleson's story really begins with Bobby, though, uh, in the negotiation of Bobby's first NHL contract with the Bruins. Or needed, the Oars needed someone to represent Bobby, and as they felt that they were in no position to negotiate with an NHL franchise. Oars, the Oars trusted Bobby's future to Eagleson, and in case in point, for the first contract, he delivered. Uh, getting Bobby much more than he, the initial offer by the team, and it looked like they could trust uh, the savvy, fast-talking lawyer to look after Bobby's affairs and just about everything. Bobby goes on to say that Eagleson was a huge part of his life, taking care of the money while he simply played hockey. He trusted Eagleson to handle everything for him, and in many ways had no reasons to doubt that he was not doing things that were in his best interest. Still, Bobby begins to see that Eagleson is becoming too interested in the purse strings and compensating himself and his family, for example, at a sports camp that Orr sponsored just south of Perry Sound in the summers. Orr also started uh, to take big exception to the way that Eagleson was treating people in public and the way he was trying to drive a wedge in his personal relationships with uh, other people to the point of uh, really being sort of controlling Bobby and creating a dependency uh, that uh, Bobby describes as hard to see back then, but kind of easy to see in hindsight now. Or ever the simple, shy, nice kid from Perry Sound treated everyone with respect and started to wonder what was behind Eagleson's mask? Why was he doing the things that he was doing? Why was he doing things like uh, being mean to uh, waiters and waitresses at, uh, and, and berating people in public? when they probably really didn't deserve it, uh, when he was trying to show Bobby that he was a nice guy, uh, 
kind of uh, the two-facedness is really what Bobby was starting to describe. Orr says the falling out with Eagleson started while he was in Chicago. He started to actively avoid Allen and uh, really couldn't stand him much anymore. Then it came to light about then eventually it came to light about how Eagleson had not negotiated his last contract really in accordance with his wishes, uh, just as I alluded to at the end of the second period. Bobby didn't want to leave Boston, and the thought was that Eagleson was working towards that goal as, in accordance with Bobby's wishes to keep him as a Bruin. Uh, but Eagleson kept telling Bobby that the Bruins had given up on him and was really untruthful in communicating the particulars of what Boston was offering Bobby. Specifically, Eagleson left out the fact that the Bruins were offering a share of ownership in the team, which was very lucrative, uh, as you can imagine. The ownership share would have been about 18.5%, which would have given Orr stability long-term and made sure that he stayed inside the Bruins family uh, and retired as a Bruin. But as Bobby put it, he just trusted that Eagleson was telling him all the details of the negotiations, and since he was his friend, he had no reason to doubt him. Add to that, Orr also believed the things that uh, were being written about him and Eagleson's negotiations in the paper were basically attempts to save face and gain an advantage by the club because that's what Eagleson told him. There was also a rumor out there that Bill Wirtz, the uh, owner of the Blackhawks, who was really friendly with Eagleson, also had a hand in keeping information from Orr and incentivizing uh, Eagleson to do so just so he could go ahead and sign or out from underneath the Bruins. In the spring of 1979, just before Bobby's retirement, he decided it was time to cut ties with Eagleson. He met with him face to face, and in that meeting, expected Eagle, as expected, Eagleson admitted to no wrongdoing and tried to convince Orr to stay with him, to which Bobby declared, Alan, I don't care how it turns out, I have to get away from you. And that was the end of it really wasn't the end of it. Uh, after that, Bobby would find out just how much damage Eagleson did. Because Bobby had trusted Eagleson with his finances, he didn't have much he didn't have much to show for the huge contracts he'd signed. Bobby explains that he has no idea where the money went uh, at the time of his retirement, but he felt like he should have had a lot more. Uh, and from what I understand, the debts in his assets had become almost uh, equal to where Bobby essentially had no money. Uh, one of the best players ever who was paid pretty very well uh, for the time was not where he should have uh, been financially. And had he been a part owner of the Bruins, he might have been able to rebuild his wealth a little bit more quickly uh, and without peril. But that was another thing that Eagleson took from him because he didn't tell him the particulars of the Bruins contract. Of course, Bobby wasn't the only player that Eagleson swindled. Eagleson was accused of taking large payments from insurance claims before the players filing them received their fair share, telling the players that he earned the fee while fighting against the insurance companies to get the claims paid. In fact, many players later learned that the insurance companies had already agreed to pay the claims and there had been no fight. In other cases, which a, quote, fight, with the insurance companies was required, several players ran into bureaucratic dead ends and no support from Eagleson, while they tried to move forward on insurance and pension claims to support their families. So you can see that uh, Eagleson was supposed to be fighting for some of the uh, some of the people who were, didn't have as a fortunate a career as Bobby did, uh, and said he was doing things, but really wasn't. Finally, his indiscretions to his clients as an agent and his head of the NHLPA uh, came to a head, and Eagleson was charged by the FBI with 34 counts of racketeering, obstruction of justice, embezzlement, and fraud in the United States in 1994. However, he still had enough political clout from his days as an M minister of parliament and a power broker with progressive conservatives. After a three-year investigation, the RCMP charged Eagleson with eight counts of fraud and theft. He was able to stave off extradition to the United States until 1997. Some of Eagleson's former clients, including Orr, remarked that it had not 
been for the United States justice system, he would have never been charged. After the, being arrested, one FBI agent remarked that Eagleson, quote, just didn't get it. As the former sports agent was tinkering with police, police equipment while being booked. On January 6, 1998, Eagleson pled guilty to three counts of mail fraud in Boston and was fined $700,000. Later that year, he pled guilty in Toronto of three more counts of fraud and embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars of Canada Cup proceeds in 1984, 1987, and 1991. He was sentenced to 18 months of prison, of which he only served six. In the end, Alan Eagleson was nothing more than a thief who wanted to take the proceeds of people he was supposed to protect. Luckily for Orr, he was able to use his name to recover and is living quite well now. Other victims of Eagleson haven't been so lucky. Next up, we're going to take a quick extra frame uh, to discuss a recent story around Bobby that you may have heard in the news. So stay tuned. The Overtime's up next. Bobby Orr has endorsed Donald Trump just days ahead of Tuesday's presidential election in the United States. The Hockey Hall of Famer and Boston Bruins icon took out a full-page ad and Bobby Orr has endorsed Donald Trump just days ahead of Tuesday's presidential election in the United States. The Hockey Hall of Famer and Boston Bruins icon took out a full-page ad in Friday's New Hampshire Union leader, asking readers to join him and his wife, Peggy, to support Trump for re-election. Everyone has an opinion as our upcoming presidential election approaches, and I am no different," Or wrote. When I look art America during these turbulent times, I keep trying to separate style from substance, fact from fiction. This much I know. Our current president has had to operate under extremely difficult conditions over the past several years. In addition, no leader anywhere signed up with the idea that dealing with a worldwide pandemic would be part of their mandate. The attacks on our president have been unrelenting since the day he took office. Despite that, President Trump has delivered for all the American people, regardless of race, gender, or station in life. That's the kind of teammate I want. Perhaps you do not like his tweets or how the president says things sometimes, and that is your right. But remember this is not a personality contest, it's about policies and the people those policies assist. I have never done anything like this before, but I am greatly concerned for the country in which I have raised my family, a country I have grown to love deeply. I want my grandchildren to know the America I know, a place of patriotism and opportunity. Some of you may still be undecided at this point. Your vote for President Trump would help keep America moving forward in the years ahead. So please, join Peggy and me in supporting President Donald J. Trump for re-election in this important election. Orr's statement in the paper includes a photo of him posing with Trump. So welcome to the overtime period. Got a little bit of extra frame for you today. So I'm just going to start out and say, uh, if you're a hockey fan and you haven't been living under a rock, you might have heard that Bobby Orr recently decided to weigh in on the U.S. election for president. And unless you totally didn't even turn on your TV in Canada or the U.S., you might have missed that Bobby decided to take out an entire full-page ad in the New Hampshire Union leader endorsing Donald Trump for president. So what you heard before we started OT was a spoken transcript of the text of that ad. But what you can't see is the picture of Orr, his wife Peggy, and Trump all giving a thumbs up at what appears to be a fundraising dinner that was included in the full-page ad. I think where people got upset here was that Orr, who's always been known to be a very generous and humble person, would come out in support of someone who, through his actions and words, seems to be the opposite of the great player from that small Canadian town. Uh, not to mention, it wasn't just a quick passing of a note or a comment to a reporter. It was a full-page ad in a paper. Uh, now, I'm not wanting to start a political war here or anything, and Orr is entitled to his opinion for sure. I think everyone is. But what I think is is lost on most people is one of the central tenets that with any sports fan needs to keep in mind when they uh, examine their sports heroes is that uh, they are who they are while playing the sport. But away from the game, they're individuals. They have their own lives, views, vices, and proclivities. Constantly I'm reminded of that all the time. You know, and I think Bobby Orr has the right to express whatever view he wants to because, well, he's a free man just like the rest of us. However, comma, 
it's also the right of others to question that, especially if you make such a public proclamation. Many other celebrities have been criticized for speaking out against Trump, so isn't it fair that Orr would be open to criticism for speaking out for Trump? Regardless of what side of you, this issue you're on, I hope you keep this in mind. Bobby's past good deeds still stand on their own and should still be respected. But I guess for me, when, when you have such a great platform and the means to reach millions, wouldn't you want to try and use it for something a little more helpful than politics? How many meals could that add or other funds that he's given to Trump have bought people who are out of work right now because of the pandemic? Once again, to me, it's not about who he endorsed. It's about the fact that he decided to donate his time and treasure to politics, a world that doesn't really need Bobby Orr. The rest of the world could use Bobby Orr, but politics really doesn't need him. Once again, just my opinion. Uh, and that's really all I wanted to say about it in this overtime period, but I felt I'd be remiss if I didn't at least bring that up. But like I said before, just remember, I think one of the biggest things that you should walk away from that episode of, regardless of your politics, is that the man made a choice. He's a free person, and uh, he's should be remembered for the good things he did, obviously. Um, but going forward, whatever you choose to think of the man uh, because of that, that's your own opinion. Today I, I am officially retiring as a player in the greatest league in the world. I think the greatest sport. I will not make another comeback attempt I'm disappointed, but I am relieved. I would not want to go through the rest of my life thinking, well, maybe there was that chance. I now know I'm no longer able to play. So that was a clip from the uh, PBS show Nova. Uh, really good science show. I'm sure some of you have seen it before, uh, but it's describing... Uh, Bobby describing a lot of his knee injuries and the effects that he's had and just uh, kind of a quick uh, synopsis of how that was such a big deal and how the sport really affected his health overall. But uh, I just found it to be a big summary of uh, what we talked about earlier with his uh, knee issues. So looking at the post game, uh, I just want to say, you know, that today Bobby Orr has decided to give back to the players of tomorrow. Uh, that's his legacy right now. The Orr Group represents many of today's uh, hockey superstars. He and his company help out not only help out not only to steer young professional hockey players and to financial success, but to educational and moral success as well. Orr ensures that the players of today can be successful not only in the game but in life as well. That speaks to me because Bobby is someone who had the natural drive and humility and a strong upbringing that made his path to success on the ice relatively easy. It's the hard lessons he learned from being swindled from Eagleson that seems to me to be the hard failure that makes up the other part of his supporting mantra for all the players he represents. Still, when you look back at Bobby's story, you'll see one thing that's weaved into the book. It's positivity. Bobby is a positive person, and so the struggles he describes in the book that seem hard really don't seem that bad. His knee injuries and issues with Eagleson seem like they were hard, but Orr's words make you realize that he's still just simply grateful for the experience of having played in the NHL at such a high level. Also in the pages, I couldn't help but sense the humility the man had. Orr is a consensus hands-down best defenseman ever to put on skates. After the fact that that this add to that the fact that this book was not published until 2013 2014 and the first time Bobby was uh, asked about why he told his story uh, and why it took so long he said I didn't want to be the center of attention or quote take anything away from my teammates those phrases themselves are a testament to what uh, his legacy of humility is and all the things that he accomplished but once again, his accomplishments, they speak for themselves. But we as fans just can't help but watch the videos of his going coast-to-coast -coast effortlessly and weaving in and out of the opposing team to score on an equally effortless shot. And for me, 
after the book, I simply just imagine him as that undersized kid on the bay in Perry Sound, weaving out uh, in and out of a bunch of kids, uh, getting ready to score a goal on that frozen bay. So, go out and read or my story. It was a good, simple read that is key to anyone who wants to know the whole story of hockey. I just really enjoyed reading the words of a great of the game and seeing how he battled through his injuries so much uh, to perform at such a high level. And also, and perhaps my favorite part, is that he his is a story of how he changed hockey, but he didn't change himself too much. He's still that little kid with the buzz cap from Perry Sound, even if he is still endorsing Donald Trump for president. Okay, that's it for this week. As always, I want to thank you for stopping by and listening. I'm really humbled by your support, and I hope that you come back next week when our featured book will be Dropping the Gloves Inside the Fiercely Competitive World of Professional Hockey by Barry Melrose and Roger Vaughn. If you're like me and you grew up watching Barry and the mullet behind the King's Bench or on NHL Tonight with Bucci, uh, it's a lot of fun to hear words of wisdom from Barry and describe his playing and coaching career. Uh, so uh, really looking forward to going over that one with you next week. So until next time, please take a minute, give us a subscribe on your favorite podcast listening place, and also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So until next time, I'll just say we'll see you. Uh, this has been From the Point, and as always, stay classy, hockey fans. <laughs>